If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The crystallizing of her thought is 1974 and the sense that, first of all, something's terribly wrong, and secondly, I, Margaret Thatcher, have got an idea about how to put it right. That was Charles Moore, author of a new book about Margaret Thatcher. Other families, the Cecils, the Russells, the Stanleys, were from time to time more important. But the Devonshire's abided. They were always there. For 500 years, they were always there. And that's what makes them particularly interesting. And that was Roy Hattersley discussing the Devonshire family. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. And you can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our subscription deals. Plus, we have digital editions available for the iPad, for the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and for Google Play. For details of all of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Following the death of Margaret Thatcher in April this year, former Telegraph editor Charles Moore has published the first volume of his authorised biography of Britain's only female Prime Minister. He spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton, about Thatcher's early years and about what he made of the reactions to her death. How did you get involved in writing Thatcher's authorised biography? Uh, Well, in 1997, um, Lady Thatcher decided to deposit her extensive papers that all prime ministers have in, um, in, in a library. And because her own university, Oxford, had refused her an honorary degree when she was prime minister, 
in a in a famous uh, scandalous row, um, she gave them all to Cambridge, uh, <laughs> Churchill College, Cambridge, and there they repose. And she um, was advised that somebody would obviously write her biography, and that it would be sensible for her, therefore, to choose someone uh, with whom she had a reasonable relationship, so that. Um, that person could be given the chance to look at all the papers before they all emerged to the public view and uh, also to have access. And so she very kind to access to her and her family and her associates. And so she very kindly came to me and asked me if I would like to do that. And of course, though it was a daunting uh, undertaking, I felt it was a great honour and a great opportunity. And so I agreed to do it. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so in terms of the sources and the people that this endorsement allowed you access to, what kind of things are we talking about there? Well, first of all, it means her papers, as you know, prime minister entitled to take away um, a great deal of paper from their period in office. It's always somewhat disputed exactly what that paper should be. And some try to take away too much and so on. Um, uh, that's the first thing. And they're at Churchill College. By a sort of extension, um, it also means all the government paper because Lady Thatcher um, went to the then cabinet secretary and explained the situation and asked that I be allowed to be to see all the government paper under what's called the Radcliffe Conventions, which permit you to see papers that have not yet been released under the 30-year rule. It doesn't automatically permit you to quote from them, but it permits you to study them all. I see. Um, and I ended up... Um, the deal is that you then have to, anything you wish to quote from those restricted papers, you have to uh, show to um, uh, the relevant government departments. And in 99% of cases, those quotations were permitted. So it, there was a very minor, the, the sort of um, things I wasn't allowed to quote were, were, were very minor. They tend to be things like um, operational matters to do with intelligence or something like that. Um and then there's the access, because Lady Thatcher had, as it were, sort of turned the key in the lock for me. So I was allowed to talk to her and her Dennis and her family and um, all those close associates of hers who had in the past been in discouraged from talking were now encouraged. And Lady Thatcher gave a general expression of the wish that anybody who'd ever dealt with her should talk to me. And so in 98% of cases, they have. And so... Um, in the first volume, 315 people were interviewed uh, for it. And th then there'll be some of those people obviously overlap into the second volume, which is not yet complete, and a whole load more people for the second volume as well. So I imagine it'll end up about 500 people having been interviewed. It's a fair number, isn't it? It's huge. It's huge, yeah. Um, and you met her on a couple of occasions oh, um, no, in the course of... Oh, more than that, much more than that, because... Um, well, first of all, obviously, I knew her beforehand, and that's possibly why she asked me. I mean, I never precisely knew why she asked me. Um, but also for the book, she agreed to be interviewed. And one of the first things I did in the 1990s, because I was advised that even at that time, which the public didn't then know, she was beginning to suffer small uh, symptoms of the mental decline, which became severe in the 21st century it seemed a good idea to get on with the interviews. And she kindly did that. And we had extensive interviews in the 1990s, which the equivalent were not possible in um, the 21st century because of her failing mental powers. So what in later years I did was to, you know, have her to lunch, um, 
have a cup of tea, drop in, um, and and talk more informally because it became unfair to her to subject her to sort of two hours cross questioning. But it would be okay to chat, and um, that's how it went. But uh, it was very helpful for the book that I was able to have those formal interviews early on, and not not only with her but with other people who subsequently died, most notably um, her husband Dennis and um, her sister Muriel. What did you learn about Thatcher's life before she entered Parliament? Well, in terms of what's completely new, I think this was the most important um, area of discovery because um, uh, Lady Thatcher in general um, was not someone who welcomed investigation of anything that she considered personal and private. Um, And not that she had dirty secrets, she didn't, but she's one of those people who instinctively you know, did not encourage such things. And she's also the sort of tidy housewife who throws paper away, much to the rage of the historian. Um, So um, every time she moved house or moved office, she'd chuck out a lot of stuff. And not a great deal of personal material survived from the early days. But because of her general permission and request to her family and so on that um, I should be allowed to look at everything, uh, her sister Muriel... Uh, who was the only really important uh, survivor of the childhood, of course, um, talked to me and also discovered in her attic about 150 letters that Margaret had written to Muriel from 1939, when she was 13 or so, to about 1964, which are a complete revelation of the life and attitudes and doings of you know, first of all, a teenager, then a student at Oxford, then a, a young work, girl, woman working in industry um, and training for the bar and trying to become a political candidate and becoming one and falling in love and getting married and having children. So absolutely huge amount of material that nobody knew much about and of tremendous interest and and actually of entertainment too, because it's a very almost a rollicking story. And um Lady Thatcher was, um, on the whole, a, a very truthful person, but she had definitely not told the truth when she said that she had no boyfriends before Dennis. Um, uh, th- there were, um, and I don't blame her for that, by the way. I mean, you know, a woman particularly of that era would would instinctively not want to talk about such things. Um, uh, though, as I say, there was nothing discreditable about any of it. And um, uh, there were... Um, at least three serious boyfriends who are mentioned extensively in the letters. So you get a a, a hugely new and exciting picture of this, this young life, you know, Margaret before she was famous. Mm. Do we get a sense of the character emerging at that point that we'd know later in politics? Um, Yes. Um, In some ways it's very similar to the character that um, we know. There's that sort of, directness and almost tartness of expression um there's the determination there's the um ambition um uh, uh, there's the incredible energy and diligence um but there are other things that might be surprising for example um she there is more in her letters to muriel about clothes than about politics Um, and she's very very preoccupied with clothes and very interested in both how they look and how they are made um, and what they cost. Um, There's a lot about films and the films she enjoyed going to see. Um, uh, And though there's a lot about politics, there's nothing about what you might call ideology. What she writes about in politics 
in Tamura is politics as a form of social life and politics as a form of organization. So how much fun she's having in the Young Conservatives or in the Oxford University Conservative Association or how she's going to the party conference or how she's becoming a candidate, which is, of course, particularly interesting, that last thing. But not she doesn't discuss the content of politics in these letters, which might surprise people because, of course, in later years, she was famous for being a conviction politician. And then, of course, there's all the love interest. And I think um, people have tended to think mistakenly that a woman who uh, rises to the top in politics must be almost heartless um, and, um, you know, not, quote, normal and of course, in some ways, Mrs. Thatcher wasn't normal because she had phenomenal abilities and phenomenal ambition. But uh, she certainly wasn't heartless. And um, it's very clear here how, how she, you know, assesses boyfriends with a mixture of sort of romance and realism and humor and self-doubt and quite the sort of mixture of feelings you might expect of a, of a young woman. And, um, and, and also, of course, very interesting about her attitude to Dennis, because um, when he asked her to marry him, she was uh, uh, really more keen on another man, um, a man who was twice her age, called Robert Henderson, a doctor, a distinguished doctor who'd invented the iron lung um, and was a bachelor age about 48. She was, she was 24 or so. And it's clear from the letters that at that time he engaged her affection more than Dennis, but she and he had decided in circumstances that aren't completely clear not to marry really, I think because of the age difference. And Dennis was there in the background, but she often writes about Dennis in this period before she knew that he was really a suitor in a slightly comically disparaging way. So she says things like when she first met him, she says, uh, she refers to mural to a major Thatcher, um, Aged about 36, plenty of money, not a frightfully attractive creature, I think oh. is the first. <laughs> um, and uh, in fact, and she, and she sometimes says that he's an awkward fellow to go out with in the evening or something like that. Um, but then, almost on the rebound, when it sort of hadn't worked out with Robert Henderson, suddenly Dennis proposed to her in 1951, and this was a great surprise to her. And... Um, as Dennis put it to me, she didn't leap at it, uh, <laughs> but she thought about it and she realized that he would bring security, that she did admire him, that he knew the world better than she did, um, that they shared political beliefs and interests, um, and she accepted him. And so it wasn't a great, um, she wasn't swept off her feet at all. Um, it was what you might call a rational decision uh, but as she put it herself you know these th these decisions that take a bit of time to make tend to be the right ones and as we all know um it was a very successful marriage actually the book shows that there were some problems quite early on in the marriage um but they were successfully overcome and um you know it's hard to imagine how she could have been so successful in her career without his support Moving ahead um, to her time in opposition, how do you think this period affected her politics? You mean when she's leader of the opposition? Yes, yes. Um, well, it's notoriously the worst job in politics, being leader of the opposition. And in many ways, she hated it because she was frustrated about what she couldn't do. And she also had to was conscious that she was running a sort of coalition within her own party because most of the 
uh, high ups and therefore the people in the shadow cabinet were people who had not wanted her to be the leader because it it was more the backbenchers who'd wanted her to be the leader. So she was treading on on thin ice. Um, but she, because she was leader for four years, she did have the chance to think deeply about what it was she was trying to do and the preparatory work in terms of uh, of sense of priorities and an analysis of what was wrong with Britain uh, was vital. And it allowed her also to do something which she liked very much, which is not just listen to the normal regular run of political people, but to get in all sorts of mad intellectuals and people with strange ideas and who were often very creative um, and also people who could improve her performance in the media and uh, in her presentation. And so she matured incredibly fast as a politician. If you sort of listen to what she says in 1975 and compare it with 1979 the, or watch her on television, or you, you see this great growth of a, accomplishment and political savvy and also a sort of refinement of the ideas which she'd always believed in in a way that gives them what you might call might call weaponizes them politically so it was an absolutely a uh, key time for her touching on that idea actually i mean how how soon forward do you think we can trace the emergence of the politics that became known as thatcherism well she said once that words to the effect that everything i believed was formed by the age of 17 and that's not i think that is broadly true that's to say she had very strong political beliefs which didn't fundamentally alter but i think that what did happen was that until 1974 she pursued an essentially conventional politically political career she she believed that the Conservative Party had the main answers to running Britain and she simply wanted to rise in the Conservative Party and do her best. And it was only in 1974 with the 1974 election, the minor strike, the failure of the Heath government, of which she was a, a cabinet minister as education, that she came to think very hard and to believe that both her party and her country were failing and I think failure was the thing she hated most of all. And she couldn't bear the idea that her country was um, declining. And she felt it didn't have to be that way. And this was true of its attitude to Soviet Union, um, of its uh, inflation, of its trade union labor relations, um, its uh, nationalized industries, um, and its over-government. And, um, and so she... Uh, really crystallized her thought. I think the key year for the crystallizing of her thought is 1974 and the sense that, first of all, something's terribly wrong. And secondly, I, Margaret Thatcher, have got an idea about how to put it right. Talking about her ideology, I suppose, um, do you think that she was motivated by principle or pragmatism or was it a mixture of the two things? Well, of course, it was a mixture. And one thing that comes out in the book was something that she would tend to underplay, which is her sheer political cunning. Her beliefs certainly were real. She certainly was, as she said, a conviction politician. But you don't succeed electorally just by being a conviction politician. I mean, any old fool can be a con conviction politician. The question is, can you uh, make those convictions um, coalesce with uh, calculations about when to go forward, when to pause, um, how to fight a political battle? And um, she was... 
very good at that, at, at that sort of pragmatism. She did um, a classic example would be that in 1981 she gave in to the miners. People forget this because um, she wasn't ready for with coal stocks and with reform of the labour laws for a coal strike. So she gave in to the miners' demands in 1981, but but prepared with redoubled vigour to get this right for the next challenge, which came in 1984, when, of course, the year-long miners' strike happened and she prevailed. There's some debate around whether we can truly call Thatcher a conservative or a feminist. These are the kind of labels that get discussed. Do you think it's right to call her either of those things? Well, on conservative, I think it certainly is right. And what, But one of the fascinating things about it is that I think she's an absolutely genuine conservative. She believed in tradition. She believed in the monarchy. She believed in the British constitution. She believed in the glories of British history. Um, she believed in uh, a culture in which things are handed down. She believed in um, the Christian values in which she was brought up. So in that sense, she was not in any way a revolutionary. On the other hand, she was very, very radical, particularly in economic matters. Um, and she thought things really did have to change and you couldn't just go on doing the same old things. And um, this is sort of interesting tension in her whole uh, character. Um, so in one sense, she's a nostalgic thinking about the greatness of Britain and, and really, I think, fundamentally very much in favour of the British Empire. And it was never really very critical of the British Empire. And on the other hand, um, somebody who, who thinks things have got to change so much um, and, you know, our ways of doing things have been so wrong in, for example, labour relations, that she would be very, very radical indeed. So that's an interesting tension. As a feminist, um, she didn't like feminists with the capital F because first of all she thought they had left-wing agendas and secondly she thought they were mistaken in their tactics because what they did in her opinion was to keep on using the word women which would have the paradoxical effect that men would concede to them only things which the men regarded as women's issues and which didn't interest the men and in Margaret Thatcher's belief she didn't believe in the equality of the sexes. She believed in the superiority of women. Um, so the question was, um, for her, not do we create a wedge where women have more power over, quote, women's issues, like, let's say, health, but how do we actually conquer the issues which men really think that belonged to them, of which the most obvious are uh, war and money and power in general? And so... She was always most interested in those subjects that, that were most traditionally allocated to men. So she was interested in defense, diplomacy, um, the treasury, and of course, the whole uh, power that accumulates from being prime minister. And so she also didn't particularly like the company of women, although she believed in the superiority of her sex. So um, she she loved being with men, but she wanted to run them. So this was a, f a very, very strong form of feminism, but not a form of feminism likely to appeal to um, the so-called women's movement. You mentioned their issues of defence and war. How central a turning point was the Falklands War in Thatcher's career? I think it was extremely important for uh, her career, more important really for her career than for the issue itself, actually. Um, 
the reason it was so important was that uh, the stakes were so high and they came at a time which was still very difficult for her. At the beginning of 1982, although it subsequently became apparent that the economic problems that had beset her first three years were already getting better and her 1981 budget had fundamentally been successful, um, it didn't really feel like that and she was very unpopular still. And there were people in her own party who were still thinking of how do we get rid of her, uh, almost hoping that she'd w lose the next election. Along come the Argentine invasion of the Falklands at the beginning of April 1982. Almost completely unexpected event, um, a huge bungling of British policy that allowed it to happen. Um, and therefore, Mrs. Hatcher could see that if she didn't uh, rescue Britain's honour and recover the islands, um, it would be a national humiliation and it would almost certainly be the end of her career. She knew nothing about war beforehand, never had any experience of dealing with any of this, and essentially it fell to her. And she handled it with great skill because she did realise the importance of diplomacy and kept up a tremendous diplomatic uh, campaign uh, and tried to secure alliances with the United States and, and other allies, while at the same time having the determination to press on in military terms, get the fleet across the ocean uh, and win. And it's a complicated story, but fundamentally, she, that's what happened. She, she did win. She succeeded. And as Willie Whitelaw, her deputy, said on the night of victory uh, in, in the little party he gave, an impromptu party in her room in the House of Commons, only you could have done it because there was this sense of her particular determination. And so from um, a, a three years of sort of bad times and disbelief and questioning of her came this sense of her extraordinary resources of character and an extraordinary, clear, dramatic, martial success and a very, what you might call a very clean victory because the Falkland Islands being such an unusual place, there were almost no civilian, civilian casualties. Only three civilians were killed in the whole conflict. And so it was much cleaner than, I mean, the sad loss of life of uh, combatants, about 250 British and about two and a half times that of Argentina, but nevertheless, um, a sort of neat little war in a way that's very, very uh, unusual in modern times and a huge British victory. And so suddenly her way lay open and nobody could question her leadership. And she could then uh, uh, start to implement all the policies that she was most interested in. So it was the beginning of her zenith, and that zenith we can argue slightly about how long it went on, but she won the 83 election with a huge landslide. She won the 87 election with a smaller, but nevertheless nevertheless with a landslide. And it was really perhaps only in 1989 and obviously 1990 that her, her preeminence collapsed. So the Falklands opened the door for her. Looking back at the period covered by this first book, what do you think her greatest achievements were? Uh, well, the first great achievement was to get there and it remains absolutely the more i think about it the more surprising it is that she was able to become leader of the conservative party and prime minister it's, it is absolutely stunning when you think of the obstacles placed in the way of a woman uh, at that time and her second achievement i think was to analyze the problems of the country in a way that was both radical and convincing so that people did actually vote for it you know she was a candidate who um 
her analysis was frightening because it was so rigorous. And yet people could see in it the sense and the hope. Um, and they therefore voted for it. And that, that was remarkable that she persuaded them to do so. And the third achievement was that by the end of the period I'm describing, because the volume ends in October 1982, she had won very significant victories in economic policy, though the results were not yet very clear. Um, and she had won the Falklands War. And the third thing was that she had established a good relationship with the new American president, new in the beginning of 1981, Ronald Reagan, which had huge effects in the Cold War, more in the cut period covered by volume two. Um, and created a sort of strength for Britain in the Western world, um, which was a great significance. So you can see <clears throat> these, the foundations built uh, for <clears throat> what happened next. If she had died or lost office in, in, uh, in the period in which this book ends, 1982, most of her great achievements w would not be there because they came later. But nevertheless, it would already been a fascinating example um, and a fascinating change in British politics. And it would have established an, a, a, a precedent which others would have wished to pick up. So the achievements were already, though they were incomplete, they in many respects were already solid in this period. What, on the other hand, would you say her greatest limitations were during this period? Um, well, another thing I should say is that I think in some ways the period of 79 to 82 was a golden period of her um, the way she conducted government, because she was less arrogant than she later became. And she had to pay more attention to what other people said, which is something she sometimes found difficult. Um, so, um, uh, the were undoubted shortcomings about um, uh, uh, sort of throwing her weight around too much, which actually became more of a problem later than in this period. What was always a problem with her was and quite contrary to what people think, she wasn't very logical, rational, or well-ordered in her way of doing things. And so her government was quite haphazard. She was incredibly hardworking, and she knew the details. She also knew the big picture. That's to say she knew what she really wanted. But she, her actual way of getting there could be very muddling for her colleagues and officials. Um, and she would talk too much and stray off the point. And um, so... Uh, you, you find in this volume, for example, the head of her policy unit, John Hoskins, you know, who's a great supporter of what she was trying to do, writing her an absolutely stinking memo in the summer of 1981 when he says, um, your leadership style is appalling, um, you know, you're ruining everything, all your great ideas because nobody can bear it and you're going to go down like Ted Heath. And so, so <laughs> you know, things were, were, were not easy. And... Um, in some ways, I think she never quite understood what cabinet government was. She had a slight feeling of, like some mothers do, that, you know, the best way to do something is to do it myself. Um, it's a, a thing mothers sometimes say. And, um, of course, when you're prime minister, you just can't do everything yourself. Talking about the present day, were you surprised by the intensity of the reactions and the debate to the Thatcher's funeral? Uh, well, I wasn't surprised because Mrs Thatcher always... Uh, invited controversy by the way she put things and indeed welcomed it. Um, you know, she was always against consensus. Consensus was a bad word with her. She wanted to have the argument. But I do also think that um, the nature of the hostility was uh, 
falsely presented by a lot of the media, particularly the BBC, because it tried to create a sort of equivalence between supporters and um, critics. And the type of critic that it picked was an untypical critic. That's to say, let's say, people who'd been um, miners who supported Arthur Scargill. So you didn't hear, for example, from working miners who had always hated what Scargill was doing. Um, and uh, I felt it was unrepresentative. And Ed Miliband, the Labour leader, made a tactical error, though I understand why he did. He made a good speech in Parliament paying tribute to Mrs. Thatcher, which showed he understood very well her strengths and, and the things he didn't like. But he gave out to his party that the lead, leading people shouldn't keep on commenting on, on her between funeral and between death and funeral. Understandable, this. But it, what it meant was a sort of vacuum of what you might call reasonable criticism of Mrs. Thatcher. And this vacuum was filled by unreasonable criticism by people who are very bitter and unpleasant and who only represent, let's say, 10% of the population, making up the figure, but you see what I mean. And, um, and those people should not have been given so much airtime. And they, it was not true to say that Britain was sort of split down the middle. You had a much fairer way to put it would be that there are, let's say, 40% of people who are very strong admirers, um, another 40% perhaps who are more critical than they are admiring, but, uh, but you know, can see her virtues. Uh, and then some some don't knows and perhaps 10, 15% who are, who are deeply hostile. So... Um, Somehow I felt that didn't come out properly. And finally, uh, what most surprised you during the course of researching and writing this book? Um, I was surprised by the new information from the early life, which really gave a whole new dimension. And that largely depends on, on Muriel and the letters. And then I was surprised by not completely surprised, but nevertheless by her fantastic cunning as a politician, which of course is something she'd never admit. Because one of Mrs. Thatcher's skills is that she talked in private like she did in public. Um, so she didn't sit around saying, ha ha, wasn't I clever, which is what a male politician would do when the doors are shut. But actually, she did do that. She did screw her opponents, and um, including her own party, and she did know how to calculate that. So she had tremendous political ruthlessness, um, but never did she analyze that to herself. And one of the reasons I love being her biographer is I'm looking at an unexamined, I am examining an unexamined life. She did not examine her own life. Um, she wouldn't investigate her own motives and behavior. I mean, she'd be quite self-critical about how she hadn't done enough work on something or something like that. But um, she didn't investigate her own motives and behavior. And so, you know, for me, this is a constant source of interest and, and, and often of surprise. That was Charles Moore. The first volume of his biography of Margaret Thatcher, subtitled Not for Turning, is published by Alan Lane. And we'll be reviewing the book in a forthcoming issue of the magazine. Speaking of the magazine, in fact, our July issue has just gone on sale. This month, we're discussing the first Viking King of England, visiting the renovated Mary Rose, analysing the Battle of Gettysburg, and finding out how to survive a marriage in the Georgian era. You can track down our July issue in all good news agents and, of course, digitally. And now we have a short advert. From New York Times number one best-selling author Steve Berry comes The King's Deception, a white-knuckle ride conspiracy thriller full of deception and political intrigue. 
taking you back to the Tudor court where an extraordinary secret is waiting to be revealed. My kind of thriller, says Dan Brown. I love this guy, says Lee Child. From Middle Temple to Windsor Castle, Oxford to Hampton Court, follow former Justice Department agent Cotton Malone as he attempts to unravel the mystery before innocent lives are lost in 21st century Britain, including Malone's son. Read The King's Deception by Steve Berry. Out now. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. For our next interview, I'd like to also mention that tickets are selling rapidly for our History Weekend Festival. It's taking place in the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury from the 25th to the 27th of October and will include talks from some of Britain's leading historians, including Max Hastings, Michael Wood... Dan Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Dominic Sambrook, and Alison Weir. For the full lineup and for ticket information, visit historyweekend.com. Granted the Devonshire title in the late 17th century, the Cavendish family has played a part in the political and social life of Britain for centuries. The former Labour politician Roy Hattersley, who has written a new study of the dynasty, spoke recently to Matt about some of its more notorious members including Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. Roy began by talking about how he tackled a project with such an epic historical sweep. The beginning was easy. Um, I decided I'd start where the family started, uh, looking at the origins of the family, which are in fact obscure, turned out to be rather bogus. Uh, But I tried to find out how this family began. The real question was where to end. 
Um, I decided initially, and in the 1906, 1908, with the death of the last significant Cavendish Devonshire, which Marcus Hartington, who was a member of Parliament for 30 years, member of the House of Lords for 20, and was described by Mr. Asquith when he died as the last survivor of the golden age of British politics. But then when we'd virtually done the book, Medieval England till 1908, the publisher suggested there needed to be another chapter rushing through the last hundred years because people would say, why has this ended here? So with the help of the Duke, the Duke was to help me with that chapter, we added this additional chapter which brought it more or less up to date, not quite, but all more or less. That's fantastic, thank you. So it's a huge um, range of time. Um, what characters stand out for you in the early days of um, the family setting itself up? Well, Bess of Hardwick uh, is clearly one of the most dominant women in English history. Um, in her time, she rose from being the daughter of a yeoman to being a countess, a personal, intimate friend of Queen Elizabeth, the richest woman in England apart from Queen Elizabeth, uh, at court and influencing decisions at court, described as having the manners, instincts and technique, temperament of a man. So she's an immensely important character. But so is her second husband. Her second husband is the first William Cavendish. Um, and he, in a sense, sets the scenes for the rest of them. He's the first Cavendish to play a big part in English history. He helped to administer the closure of the monasteries, the dissolution of the monasteries. So those two figures, the two partners, initially, initial partners, Bess and her second husband, really start the thing off. Mm. What do you think drove them to um, build and kind of extend houses so much and be so? Um... I think Bess was an instinctively competitive and ambitious woman. I think it was just in her bones. Uh, it was what ruined her final marriage, her marriage to the Earl of Shrewsbury. In the end, he, she didn't think of him as her husband. She thought of him as her competitor. He was building more and building faster. He was building better. She was acquiring more money than him. She was buying more land than him. She was just one of those people who have a desperate desire to get on. Uh, it's 500 years before Freud, but uh, we can make up our own minds whether it was because she felt insecure or whether she felt very secure. But for one reason or another, she had a desperate desire to get on. Mm. I think that's what's so fascinating is about this book is there's just a whole series of really strong characters that shine through. Um, are there any that for you particularly stand out? My great hero in the book, though some people would not regard him as a heroic figure, is the first duke. Um, the first duke had a very dubious youth and early manhood, whoring, drinking, dueling. Though, as I say in the book, he challenged rather more often than he actually fought duel. Um, but in his middle age, he becomes obsessed, I think that's a fair word, with the what he regarded, I think rightly, as growing tyranny of the Stuarts. The Stuarts have been restored. Instead of running a constitutional monarchy, Charles II was making secret deals with France. He was taking money from France for sending British mercenaries to fight in the Dutch wars. He was, he was deluding Parliament. He was using parliamentary money for his own purposes. And the first Duke of Newcastle begins chipping away in Parliament House of Commons first, House of Lords afterwards, at the King's prerogative. So he, in a sense, is preparing the way for the glorious revolution. And then he was one of the immortal seven who signed the letter to William of Orange asking him to come over. And I think he is the biggest figure in the whole book and essential to the progress of English history. I also like him because he's so impertinent. Um, he was rude to the King. He cut the Duke of York, who became James II. Um, and the instance I like most of all, he was fine for brawling at court. 
And um, he said, well, I'll pay you back in these worthless bonds your father gave my father in return for money lent him during the Civil War, which I think is rather nice to It's really good. Um, are there, I mean, I think what's nice about the book is there's um, quite a lot of your character comes through and there's figures in there that aren't necessarily seen by you as being particularly wholesome or good necessarily. Um, did you find it difficult to warm to some of the people that you were writing about? Well, I was warned by my editor that there were two characters that when she saw the final, not the final work, but the final first draft, there were two characters who I clearly didn't like, clearly disapproved of. And if I continued in my disapproval, I would get into great trouble from women uh, historians or some women historians. And they were the Duchess of Newcastle, Madge Lucas, Duchess of Newcastle, and... Um, the famous Georgina. And I was sensible about this. I mean, I didn't want to offend a whole swathe of reviewers. So I tried to like these two people. But I found it impossible to like them. And in the end, you have to write what you think to be true. And it happened. I mean, we had three stupendous reviews. Then we had a fourth review in which accused me of misanthropy. They meant, mis- misogy- they meant misogyny. They said misanthropy because I said that these two women were rather less than they were made out to be. The Duchess of Newcastle thought of herself as a writer, said she was a better writer than Shakespeare, which I regarded as just so preposterous as to be beyond the pale. And Georgina was one of those people who were famous for being famous and very flash, and I don't like flash. So I had to take the criticism that I don't like women. But I've been, I hope, complimentary about some of the women, including some of the women who have been overlooked by writers looking for more dash and daring and not solid virtue. Talking now about the events that they had a part in, um, there's a whole range of events um, that they were so connected with. Are there any particularly major kind of events in British history that you think they had a hand in? Well, they had a hand in almost every big event for 400 years. And I mean, let's go through some of them. Uh, Dissolution of the the Monsters is one. Um, The Great Civil War is another. Um, The Duke of Newcastle, who was Bishop Hardwick's grandson, was Lord General of the Army of the North, um, in the Civil War, he managed with Prince Rupert to organise the defeat of the Royalist Army by his pure incompetence and was described as being as fitted to be a bishop as to be a general. He had absolutely no experience, of, no military experience at all. The king just made him a general. Um, it wasn't surprising they lost the Civil War in the North with him in command. Um, then we have, as I say, the first duke, the, f- the f- fifth earl who became the first duke, instrumental in the glorious revolution, which is the beginning of constitutional government in this country. And so it goes on. There was a prime minister, um, prime minister who, we only prime minister a few months, when the king offered him his commission, he replied that he'd become prime minister unless he found it uncongenial, in which case he would leave at once, which he did because he didn't like it. So there's a swathe after swathe of examples until we get into the 19th century. And in the 19th century, um, the, the figure... The Marquis of Hartington, Spencer Compton, Marquis of Hartington, then Duke of Devonshire, uh, is a major figure for 50, 50 years. He's the Secretary of State for War who sent Gordon to Khartoum. He splits the Liberal Party over Irish Home Rule. He splits the Unionist Party over protection. So there's always a Cavendish about. What I said in my little speech last night in the launch party was that other families, the Cecils, the Russells, the Stanleys, were from time to time more important. But the definitions abided. They were always there. For 500 years, they were always there. And that's what makes them particularly interesting. You talked a bit about your research. Um, you've had access to previously unpublished sources. 
Um, what sort of records did you look at when you were researching? I uh, had access to the whole Chatsworth archives. And I can't pretend I went through the whole archives. That's a lifetime's work. But the figures that I was chasing, uh, I looked up all their papers. I mean, I read every one of Georgina's letters home after her marriage, the first six months. She wrote home every day to her mother. And I wrote every one of those. Startling thing about them, having just been married, she writes a letter a day for six months, what's that, 170 letters, and never mentions her husband once. Wow. Which may indicate why the marriage was not a total (laughs) success. (laughs) But that's an interesting fact, but in a sense it's a small fact. And it's a lot of work, 150 letters, to work out the one small fact. Mm. So how long has it taken you all in the research? For the-, it, the, the book taken me three years. Um, as a professional writer, I need or want or like to write a book every two years. Mm. But the last two, the biography of Lloyd George, which was a big, big book with a lot of research, and this one have taken me three years. Fortunately, I can afford it now. But mm. I mean, in terms of, you touched upon this actually, in terms of writing about this particular family, um, they've endured... Um, rather than other families who haven't. Are there any other kind of characteristics about them that made you be drawn to them? Well, or? Yes, I, mean, I argue that they are the epitome of Whiggishness. Of Whigs. Because Whigs mean two things. Uh, Namia said that Whigs are about land and property. Mm. And the Devonshire certainly have and had a lot of both. But having land and property produced two Whiggish characteristics, which is what defines Whiggism. First of all, they thought, since we own this country... We have a certain duty to protect its citizens from tyranny, from invasion, from popery. So they are protectors of liberty. Never struck them that the people themselves might protect themselves or give the power to the people, but they were going to be the people's guardians. Secondly, they were so influential, so important, uh, that they didn't have to abide by the rules that govern normal people. So the entire hierarchy... I think without exception, perhaps with one or two exceptions, in eight dukes and five earls, they all not only have numerous mistresses, but are absolutely open about it. I mean, when their mistresses die, they put monuments to them mm-hmm. in their own churchyards. When their illegitimate children are born, they accept them as theirs and give them endowments and uh, give them jobs and look for, make sure they're successful in their children's occupations. What would be regarded in Victorian England as sinful, they're perfectly and totally open about. Mm. Now, that may be an attractive quality, it may just be arrogance, but it is part of the Whiggishness. And it continued right into the 19th century until Victorian morality overtook them. Mm. See, I was surprised by how much of that there was in the book. It's a huge amount of kind of just um, kind of having relations with other people outside of marriage and all that kind of thing is a massive part. Yes, because it was the Devonshire's way. The, 11th Duke of Devonshire, who I knew very well and liked very much, uh, once famously said when he was in trouble himself, but the Devonshires are promiscuous. We've always been promiscuous and always will be. Mm. I mean, um, talking about, I suppose, just how huge they became, it's interesting about how many people they employed um, just to run this huge kind of empire, if you like. Um, And still do. I mean, um, going to Chatsworth two or three days a week for two years of the three I spent on the book. I was going the side entrance, I don't know if you know Chatsworth, two great gates, one where the public go in, a little door where the Duke goes in, and a great gate where tradesmen go in. I went in the great tradesmen's gate and was led through these corridors to the room in which I worked. 
And it like really led through a factory. I mean, there are huge rooms full of electrical gear where people are looking after electricity. There are huge rooms full of carpentry where people are doing... I mean, it is a major business. Mm. It is an industry. Mm. Um, and was the first, st first state they home to be opened, opened 300 years ago. And they work at it very hard. Mm. And there's some famous people who were employed by them, weren't there? Well, that's one, another one of the attractions. Uh, um, I mean, Thomas Hobbes was tutor to two generations of Cavendish sons. Um, Capability Brown reorganised the, reorganised the gardens. But most important was Paxton. Uh, Paxton is a sense the hero of the book. He's not a Devonshire by birth, but he in, is integrated into the family. The Seventh Duke said that he was really just chairman of Paxton and Company Limited. Uh, and Paxton started off as a gardener, the gardener of genius, gardener of, head gardener at Chatsworth when he was 19, and then becomes everything. I mean, he was member of Parliament for Leicester, he was director of Midland Railway Company, he was a newspaper proprietor, was editing some academic botanical magazines, and still head gardener at Chatsworth, all in one year. Amazing, yeah. And he yeah. absolutely epitomizes the Victorian belief in work and industry and concentration and getting on and mm. doing the right thing. What were the major challenges for you when you were writing the book? Well, just covering the distance, covering the volume. Was, uh, if I'd started three years ago and said, I'm now going to write a book that covers 500 years, or nearly 500 years, I don't think, I think the, it would have overwhelmed me. Mm. But it was rather like when I used to go running in the morning. I used to go running around Vincent Square here, and I did four miles, which was going around 16 times. And if I'd started off saying I'm going to do four miles, I would have dropped dead with exhaustion. Mm. I would, I was going to, I'd said, I'm going to run around this square. When I'd done it once, I'd say, I'm going to run around again, and suddenly I'd done it 16 times. Yeah. And that's how it was with the book. I'm going to write about Elizabethan England. I've done it. Now I can write about Tudor. I can write about... Um, Stuart England. And by doing it incrementally, I wasn't overwhelmed by the idea of doing quarter of a million words in three years. Sure. Fantastic. And how about the thing that perhaps most surprised you as a result of your research? I, th I think what surprised me most of all was the intensity of the traditional Cavendish anti-Catholicism, or to me, fair anti-popery. They weren't so much worried about the theology of Catholicism, but they were absolutely determined that the Pope would have no influence in Great Britain. Their worry was not so much about transubstantiation or the sacraments or the role of the priests. They were determined that the, nobody outside Britain would influence British policy. It was sort of Euroscepticism. Uh, I mean, the Reformation in England was not about religion in itself. It was about power. Who runs this bloody country? Me, Henry VIII, not the Pope. Mm. And they inherited that. And I was astonished by how Cavendish after Cavendish, Devonshire after Devonshire, had the same view of we must be sure that we're free of Popish influence. To what extent did the family influence the path that Britain took? And to what extent did Britain influence the family? Or can you separate those two things? There's no doubt the family influenced the path that Britain took because they were from, certainly from 1600 onwards, uh, in favour of a constitutional monarchy rather than absolute monarchy, and fought and succeeded in obtaining that. Uh, and they became part of the great Whig tradition that ended up with an 1832 reform bill. So they, the family, I think, for many years stood out against modernisation, um, but eventually accepted, embraced it. The present Duke accepts all the rules of the modern society. Um, doesn't believe the aristocracy means very much anymore. It's actually said he thinks the aristocracy, in effect, is dead. 
But the example I gave of the change, which is right at the end of the book, in 1932, uh, the 10th, 9th Duke uh, arranged for the prosecution of some trespassers, tre people walking on Kinder Scout. And by what was seen to be pressure on the magistrates, these innocent men just going across his land, he said it was his land, they were trespassing, um, were prosecuted for breach of the peace and sent to prison. It was a great scandal at the time. Well, on the 50th anniversary of that, the 11th Duke turned up at the anniversary meeting, turned up in his ducal Bentley with the crest on the front door, and got out of the and said, can I speak, and apologised for what his grandfather had done. Mm. Now, I think... And I say in the book, that's an indication that they were beginning to accept that the world was changing and they better change with it. Um, are there any other characters, perhaps later on in the history of the family, that you think shaped its course? Well, there's some characters which don't so much shape its course, but shape in England's course, which have been very much neglected. Um, I've written a chapter on Henry Cavendish, the scientist. And since I'm absolutely unscientific, I had a couple of seminars with... Vice-Chancellor of Sheffield University was a fellow of Royal Society and a physicist. Uh, Henry Cavendish worked out how to weigh the world. Um, now, to me, very unscientific, I can't understand what the importance of weighing the world is. But I was assured by this modern, up-to-date scientist that knowing the specific gravity of the world was essential to astronomy. Well, Cavendish did that and was described by uh, Stevenson as the second most important scientist in English history, first of all Newton, then Henry Cavendish. So these figures keep coming in from time to time. And one again, one of the attractions of the family is they have that sort of person on the fringes of the family, but nevertheless, they're worth a book in themselves. Um, we haven't really touched on Georgiana, which was a conscious decision, I think, on my part, but... Well, uh, let me tell you about you. Mm, okay. Georgiana was a monster. Um... The Sunday Times accused me of misogyny. It says I accuse I, I um, would forgive the men's sexual deviance, but not hers. In fact, in terms of her sexual life, she was more respectable than most Cavendishes. She had one big affair in her life when most Cavendishes had dozens. Uh, but in other ways, she was appalling. I mean, first of all, she was totally dishonest. She lied to everybody. And she lied about money, and she borrowed money from people who couldn't afford it, what, what in the time would be called her social inferiors, knowing she'd never pay them back. Uh, so that was her main moral weakness, that she was a fraudster. Um, secondly, she was totally irresponsible. Um, she was irresponsible about her children, irresponsible about uh, the, the Duke's children, who she claimed she'd take responsibility for. She also had sudden affections, sudden infatuations, with women as well as with men. We don't know exactly what her relationship with women was, but we know that there were two women in her life from whom she was inseparable, wrote what amounted to love letters, chased them all over Europe, and also was fundamentally silly. I mean, she had a scheme to uh, rescue the Dauphin of France from the French Revolution, which never could have worked, and she just spent a lot of money on. She went to the bogus wedding of the Prince Regent and Mrs. Fitzherbert, which was in itself high treason. Mm. She was just a silly woman. Um, and what irritated me about her is that, as I said, she was famous for no other reason than she was famous. It was just a self-perpetuating thing. Indeed, one of the advisors, indeed, one of the archivists at Churchworth, which I won't say which one, said to me as he read the book, what struck me about her is that if in Georgian England there'd been a programme called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, she would have insisted on going on. <laughs> and, and, and that is her. That mm, is her completely. Yeah. I mean, 
to what extent then is she a product of her age? Do you think you can chart the, the kind of changing social face of Britain through this one family? Well, I felt I'd be really careful about this because what is perfectly true to say is that her marriage was a marriage of the time and she wouldn't or couldn't accept what marriages of the time were. She was a teenager. Her husband was nearly 20 years older. And it was her task to provide an heir and to be an adornment. Now, um, she found that very difficult. Now, you might say that's to her credit, but she knew what she was taking on at the time. And it's not that she was an avant-garde person who believed in women's liberation. She never thought for many women should have the vote, for instance. Her participation in elections was to kiss people and to create a vote by kissing them, Um, which in 35 years in Parliament never Excellent. Something I never experienced. Um, but she wasn't, if you'd been a progressive, it would have been understandable. She was just an irresponsible. Uh, and if you read her letters, I mean, lies to her mother about her debts, lies to her husband about her debts, lies to her friends about her debts, promises to go to places that she never intended to go to, you see that she's really a rather trivial character. Mm-hmm. I have no idea she didn't tell her husband. Ever, ever, she ever. Had. No, I know. I mean, she, she, di- she died without her husband. Her husband constantly said, tell me how much you owe and I'll clear the debts. And she never could bring herself to tell him. Mm. So what's his reaction when he found out how much well, it was? Well, uh, by the time he found out, she was dead. Um, and he, he, his second wife, who she became, uh, Lady Elizabeth, um, had the job of going around to people saying, how much does she owe? I'll pay you off. I'll pay. And he paid off. And well, fortunately, the... Cavendishes and the Devonshires had enough money to throw a great deal of it away and still be solvent. Mm. They were often on the point of bankruptcy, but what they did when they were on the point of bankruptcy is sell a few hundred acres of land and they were in the black again. Mm. That was Roy Hattersley. Roy's new book, The Devonshires, A Story of a Family and a Nation, is published by Chateau and Windus. And that is almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who has been in touch was Amanda, who emailed us all the way from Adelaide in Australia to let us know how much she enjoyed our recent visit to the Horrible History studio. Apparently it enlivened a rather cold, wet day down under. Thanks for that, Amanda. And if you'd like to listen to that episode, if you haven't already, it was broadcast on the 30th of May and you can find it on our website, iTunes and various places like that. And if you'd like to keep in touch with us, you can also follow us on Twitter at History Extra. Plus, you can like us on facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be talking about Viking ships and Second World War spies. You won't want to miss it. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.